Good evening. If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, if I turn my back to you, it's nothing personal. It's just that the monitor up here is not working. So I have to kind of look, see what is up there on the screen from uh, my vantage point. I enjoyed uh, the singing very much. It was uh, very uplifting. And also our time together as we uh, enjoyed our company of Christians this afternoon. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to visit with you all. Very welcoming, very warm, and uh, welcoming here to your congregation. So that's very appreciative. I appreciate you um, showing your appreciation to Bob and Sherry and their, uh, Cherry and their work here with you for 25 years. Uh, when I went with uh, Bob over to Africa twice, uh, always impressed. Bob's an excellent Bible student, also very conscientious and uh, sincere in his uh, service to God. So I know that I'm glad that you appreciate him in their work here with you. This week we're talking about zeal for God. And it's interesting when you look at the different uh, uh, verses in the New Testament that talk about zeal for God, the different synonyms that are used for zeal in the Bible. John chapter 2 and verse 9, Jesus said, uh, after Jesus had cleansed the temple, it was an unauthorized use of the temple. There was a verse in the book of Psalms that applied to Jesus, that zeal for your house has eaten me up. So Jesus, who is our example, was not a theologian that just speculated about religious matters, nor was he merely a teacher, even though he did teach the greatest lessons the world has ever heard, but he was a practitioner. In fact, he is the perfect example of all that we hope to be and to do. And so if Jesus was zealous in the service of God, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to be zealous in the service of God. And we said that a good working definition of the word zeal is a passionate devotion to God. Do I have a passionate devotion to God? And if I don't, what's holding me back? Tonight we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1 about a zeal or diligence in personal spiritual growth. In this diligence for personal spiritual growth, we're going to look here at this word diligence. The word there, diligence, is used about 12 times in the New Testament. The verse that is kind of a theme verse for this series, that we're not to be lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word there, diligence, the root word, the root concept is speed. Or uh, quickness. We might say, uh, uh, get a move on. That the child of God has, uh, it's really controlled or directed personal, spiritual excitement in the service of God. It's always controlled by the Word of God. It's controlled by reason. But there is this uh, desire to get a move on, a desire to do things. So Christians are not merely just to sort of be good, but they're to be good for something, and they do it with diligence. And I think we're di- people are diligent about things that they like and things that they think are important. The brother talked about you know the, the decision about whether uh, laying down his life for his wife and his daughter. And of course, uh, he said that would just be an easy decision to be diligent and be one to make that sacrifice. So Christ must be valued above all or not at all. If he doesn't mean everything, then it really means nothing to me. Because lukewarmness is inexcusable in the service of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look 
that word diligence there in 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Holy Spirit used it twice here, the, the, I think it's 12 times it's used in the New Testament. I want you to notice this word diligence. It says, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness, to the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Uh, Verse 4, for by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, so by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now for this very reason, applying all diligence. He said all diligence. That means an all-out effort. In your faith, supply virtue. And in your virtue, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, Godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Notice he says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, there's our word again, diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Well, you know, the Bible tells us there in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of us are privileged as a child of God to be a part of this drama of redemption, this exciting growth of spiritual discovery to become all that God wants us to be. We are the recipients of the greatest blessings in the world. And we have the greatest mission in the world to be a part of the Lord's church, to to seek and to say that which is lost and to help one another go to heaven. And being part of a local church to help one another to be the best Christians possible. So this is not something we just want to sit on. So what is your plan for personal spiritual growth? What's your plan? Well, is it, well, I I want to go to church and be a good person and read the Bible and, and that's all good. But is that kind of generic, as far as what your daily method of operation, your DMO, your daily method of operation, your hourly, your HMO, your hourly method of operation, as far as being a Christian and developing yourself, what does that look like? And so I believe here we have in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, we have this plan for personal spiritual Growth, And this is exciting because wherever you are and whatever you are, you can grow. Success is not where we are, but it's the direction in which we are moving. And because we're made in the image of God, we have a mind that we can think and we can choose, we can change as we are guided by the Word of God. So this is real exciting to think that we all can become all that God wants us to be. We can be fitted For heaven, for eternal fellowship with God. Now notice these traits. He says that, verse 5, he says that with all diligence that in your face apply virtue. Notice that the foundation of our spiritual growth is faith. And notice that it ends up with love there in verse 7. And then he says... um, uh, he says, verse 11, And in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And that's hope that we're all going to some place. So as we develop our faith, 
and our hope and our love, we will, when we come to the end of the way, we can have confidence to meet God. That we're in Christ, we're becoming what God wants us to be. Uh, the Bible tells us, and of course, where do you get faith? Where do you find faith? You see someone overcome uh, a great trial or tribulation and, and uh, make a great sacrifice, and you say, oh, I wish I had their faith. Well, I can't have their faith. You know, God has no grandchildren. I'm either a child of God by my own faith or not. And the great thing is that we can all develop as much faith as we would like to have. We can grow in that faith. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So when we hear the Word of God and we let the Word of God go to work in us, it will develop our faith, which means comprehensive confidence. It's trust or reliance. So we read the Bible to understand the, the mind of God in, that's been revealed in human language to help us know who God is and what He wants for us. But what is the end result of this faith? If faith is trust and confidence and reliance, what is the end of that? When I read the Bible, I come to know that God is real and God can be trusted. And that God keeps His promises. Therefore, faith is a refusal to panic. Now what this faith that we develop, and, and this is just a kind of a one lesson shot overview of this text, so we don't have a lot of time to go into each of these concepts. The word faith is found about 240 times in the New Testament. So how do we develop this faith? I think one way that we can develop this faith is that when we study the Bible, we see how God fulfilled his promises, how God took care of his people. And if God can take care of them... He can take care of me. Notice what he says in verse 4. We're talking about faith rests on the promises of God. That's one way to develop our personal faith. He says, verse 4, For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God is a promise-keeping God. There's not one promise in the Bible that we can point to that say God has defaulted on his promises. That's a great reason why we study the Old Testament. To see how God took care of his people. Um, and, and, we, and I won't take time to, to look at it. I just encourage you to look up these verses. But I found it in Exodus 34 verse 24 when he was telling them they were to go up three times a year to Jerusalem to worship all the men were required to appear before the Lord. That meant all the men were going to leave town. And you know what God said in Exodus 34 and verse 24? He says, no man will covet your land. They're all going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. And do the right thing and trust God for the results. You also have another promise in Leviticus 25 and 21. In the Old Testament, every seventh year, the land was to lie fallow to enjoy a, a Sabbath year where there was no sowing or reaping. And then on the 50th year was the year of Jubilee, which was a, a release of debts and those in slavery were freed. And there was no sowing and reaping. 
So if they had a Sabbath year every seventh year, on the 49th year was a Sabbath year, and then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee, no sowing or reaping, and there was two years of no sowing and reaping. They could only eat the things that that grew naturally out of the ground. They weren't to, to till the soil. You know what God said in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 21? He says, I will so order my blessings that I'll give you a three years harvest. He said, trust me. You know why the children of Israel went into captivity for 70 years? Why 70? The Bible says, so the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. If you calculate that, I think it's about the time of King Solomon, which was a prosperous time. They ceased trusting God. They ceased observing the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee where they would, the land would have no sowing or reaping. So faith is a refusal to panic. Faith sees beyond the optic nerve. Faith trusts God that he is ultimately reliable. And therefore, I don't fret. If we feed our faith, if we feed our faith, fear will start. So that's why we read the Bible. God keeps his promises. He took care of his people then. He can take care of me now. Secondly, he says, you, in your faith, he says, you do this with all diligence, which means in an all-out effort. It means uh, to with maximum effort. How do we get this spiritual motivation that we want to be diligent in spiritual things? And we have to clarify our spiritual focus. I want you to turn your Bibles here, and and he gives one example of how to develop diligence in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he talks about the end of the world. And he talks about, if you can see it, it's going to go up in smoke. And in 2 Peter chapter 3... Verse 13, we're going to read verse 13 and 14. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he had described how the, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and everything will be burned up. If you, can, if you can see it, it will not last. Everything physical is going to go up in smoke one day. But notice verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things... That's your focus. Be diligent. There's our word. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. C.S. Lewis said, everything that's not tied to eternal is eternally out of date. Uh, Several years ago, I had an opportunity for my wife to go out to uh, California. And we went out to, they had a tour of Hollywood. And you'd go to some of these sets where they would shoot movies and westerns and that kind of thing. And they'd have all these uh, sets. Where you would see, uh, you know, when you look at a movie, all the setting, it all looks real, doesn't it? Well, guess how? I found out that it's not real. It's just a facade. It's just pretend. It's just a story. It's not real. And the point is that everything physical here will not last. You think about when we leave this world, what are we going to take with us? I mean, we're not even going to have a picture album of look at all the stuff I had on earth. Look, look, look at all this. You're not going to have your phone. You're not going to be able to take selfies. You're not going to look at uh, uh, pictures on your phone. The only thing that we can take from this world is our character. How we've developed our faith in Jesus Christ. And so this verse says to fuel spiritual passion is to think about 
spiritual reality, heaven, hell, and judgment. As surely as we are here one day, we will not be here. 99.9999% of our life is going to be spent on the other side of this world. And that this world is a place of preparation by faith for a better world to come. So we get all diligence by focusing on spiritual reality, heaven, hell, and judgment. Let's see I'm on that slide there. The next he says, to, with all diligence to your faith, add virtue. The New American Standard says moral excellence. The, in the original is the word arate. At Florida College, one of the societies was called arate. That word is not used many times in the New Testament, but it means um, the high. Barclay in his commentary says it means the highest fulfillment of a thing, something that is noble, something that is excellent. If you thought about what does the very best version of you, what does that look like? I mean, if you were to become the very best Christian that you're capable of becoming, not what someone else thinks, but what really. You are capable of becoming. What would that look like? The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Among the the different virtues that Paul talks about we should think about. Things that are excellent or or virtuous. We're to think about. So the world is filled with all this uh, moral debauchery that would pull us down. How then are we to develop this moral virtue? And I think it is by... Thinking about meditating and imitating the example of Jesus Christ. So it's a great question to always ask myself every day. Our daily method of operation. What does Jesus want me to do? If Jesus was standing right here, what would he want me to do? How would Jesus handle this situation? Let's let's look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, what he says. Verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted unto us everything pertaining to life and godliness... Through the true knowledge of Him who called us, notice, called us by His own glory and virtue. We are called or attracted by the virtue of the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says you have great potential to become like me. You know what God's eternal purpose for you is? The Bible tells us there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. What God is looking for on the day of judgment, do you look like my son Jesus? Am I becoming like Jesus in thought, word, and deed? Uh, One thing that's uh, helpful when you have kind of a plan, a Bible study, um, uh, I have a a CD player on on your phone, you can get a a free Bible app, and a lot of these uh, CD players or phones, they'll have a timer on it. So when I go to sleep at night, I'll set a timer. I'll say, play for 15 minutes. And just listening to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which comprises about 47% of the New Testament, I, last thing that I think about at night before I go to sleep, instead of getting all distressed about all the bad stuff going on in the world, uh, watching the news or whatever, I can think about the virtuous example of Jesus Christ. That we need to see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly. He calls us by his virtue and his glory. And that's the way that helps us to make good moral decisions. 
When we face moral decisions like the entertainment, the songs that we listen to, the movies that we watch, does it glorify or depict something that is sinful, something that put Jesus on the cross? Now, a good question to ask is if I did the thing that I'm being entertained by, if I did that, would God condemn that as sin? So if God condemns it as sin, why do I want to be entertained by something that God condemns as sin? Why do I want to be entertained by something that put Jesus on the cross? I think that's helpful in us making moral decisions that we lose an appetite for the things that are morally corrupt or even questionable. So we want to be thinking about the example of Jesus. And then he says, notice there in verse 5, and to your virtue or moral excellence, add knowledge. Knowledge, gnosis, means accurate insight, the correct understanding of truth. And the two aspects of knowledge, part of it is an accurate understanding of the, uh, the facts and the revelation of Scripture. The other aspect of that is coming to know God, just to know the person of God. Notice what he says here, um, verse 3, that through the true knowledge of him, that same word, through the true knowledge of him, he has called us by his own glory and virtue. So when I study the Bible, I ask myself, what do I learn about the nature of God? Am I coming to know God? Because Jesus said in John 17 and verse 3, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I read the Bible as a, a wind, heaven's window and to know the nature of who God is. So that's one avenue of knowledge, to, to come to know the, the nature of God and His person. And then also, I need to have a plan of, of what is my personal plan for Bible study? Is it sort of random? Is it sort of hit or miss? I want you to notice what Peter says here in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. Notice what he says. So that we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter says we live in a dark, dying, putrid world. And the only light of truth, the only light that shows us the way out is the light of the Bible. You know, in the book of Revelation, John was in the Great Tribulation. And there were Christians who were being killed. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and blessed is he who understands, for the time is near. And the point is, when we face all these distracting or seducing voices... We'll take time to listen to the voice of God in Scripture and come to know God, everything is going to be okay. So what then is your plan for personal Bible study to develop yourself? Is it, do you have a plan? You need to get some kind of plan. Are you going to read through the New Testament? Are you going to read through the Old Testament? Are you going to read it chronologically? Are you going to read through the uh, wisdom literature? Uh, do a character study of the great characters of the Bible, the great examples of faith. Study topics like zeal, just study faith, study love, study hope. All these things, I need to have my own personal plan of Bible study, and if I don't do it, I miss it. It's like missing a meal. 
You think anybody's going to say at the end of a week, you know, I got so busy this week, I forgot to eat. I mean, there were several days there. I just, I just forgot to eat. Nobody's going to do that because your body, your stomach's going to growl and it's going to give you indications that you need to put, to need to eat something. Well, the point is our soul, our spirit uh, needs to cry out for this knowledge that's going to feed our soul. That's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. Like newborn babes, like little bitty babies, we are to long or yearn for the pure milk of the word. That is their nature to crave uh, milk, and so that's the nature of the Christian to crave knowledge. And that means participating in the services of the church, which Bible study, lessons, gospel meetings, and in Bible class. So I appreciate we have a good audience tonight. I appreciate you coming back, your interest in hearing the Word of God. Uh, I've been to some churches, I mean, on Sunday night, they have about half come back. And so that means half of the people say there's something else more important or more interesting. So I want to commend you for that. Next he says, to your knowledge, add self-control. Self-control. That word, uh, Vine says, the basic idea is strength. Robertson says, the strength to hold oneself in. We say, get a hold of yourself. Self-control says that I am responsible for me and nobody can make me do something without my consent. Self-control. Someone said, if I could kick in the seat of the pants the person that has caused me the most problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. The idea of self-control is I am responsible for me. And if I give in to sin or if I have weaknesses, I am responsible to compensate for those weaknesses. I am responsible to correct those weaknesses. And what I find is that Christians sometimes that I try and I try to be perfect and I feel like a perfect failure. I keep falling short. And I think that may be that we're just trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Instead of having this faith in God and Christ and in the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Where do we get self-control? Where do we get the power to overcome temptation? Well, let's read what the Bible says about that. I want you to turn. Um, we have, there's several verses we could talk to, but we could talk about. But look at Romans chapter 8 talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. And how does the, the Holy Spirit work in our life? Well, I believe this is one passage, we can look at several, that the Spirit works through, actively, His Word, His revelation. It's the conduit of spiritual power. Now, one good verse to show that, among others, is John chapter 6 and verse 63, where Jesus said, It is the Spirit that gives life. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. And so Jesus says, the words that I speak are life and it's the spirit that gives life. And so it is axiomatic that things equal to the same thing are equal to one another. Therefore, the spirit is giving life through the words revealed. These aren't human words. These are divine words that are endued with divine heavenly power. Now notice what... Paul says, this is how we have self-control. Verse 8, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the, the, those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Okay, where are we going to find the things of the Spirit? Where are they? I mean, are they in a cabinet somewhere? Or 
You go to the store. Where, where are the things of the Spirit? Well, the only place I know to look for the things of the Spirit is in the Spirit's book or in the Spirit's revelation. If I want to know what the Holy Spirit says, I open the Bible. There's some that say, now in the Church of Christ, you don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. Well, I want you to understand that in the Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be concentrate on Him. The Holy Spirit, in, in uh, John chapter 15, says that God said the Holy Spirit would glorify Him. That's John chapter 16 and verse 14. He would guide the Holy Spirit unto... The Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth and that the Holy Spirit would glorify Christ. So the Holy Spirit is a shy member of the Godhead that wants us to think about Christ and God's will. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth because He reveals the truth. But the, verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit, that is the things of the Spirit, is life. And peace. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we just speculate too much. This verse says that we are in the Spirit, and it says the Spirit is in us. And that's just simply a close, intimate, spiritual relationship. And that's all I got on that. When I, we say I, we're in this room, that means we're as, we're, we have a close relationship to this room. I mean, you can't get any closer to being in the room than you're in it. So the Bible says that God is in us. I am in God. Christ is in me. I'm in Christ. I'm in the Spirit and the Spirit is in me. What does that convey? A close spiritual relationship. And we don't have to explain it. We just have to believe it. So if the Spirit is in me and I'm in the Spirit, we have this close relationship. But verse uh, 10, if Christ is in you, through the, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And I think in the context here, he's talking about to our bodies now. He gives us spiritual life. When we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is revealed in the words of the Spirit. He goes on to say, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit releases His power through the Word to strengthen us to overcome temptation. Ephesians chapter 3 and um, chapter 3, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit... uh, might strengthen you with power in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. How does Christ dwell in my heart by faith? When I read what the Holy Spirit has revealed, Christ dwells in my heart by faith, and that is the means by which the Holy Spirit is strengthening us in the inner man. So when I meditate on the words of the Holy Spirit as I'm going out, we need to memorize Bible verses to help us to deal with temptation. We all know have our different temptations, whatever they may be. It may be pride, anger, lust, envy, covetousness. So when I face that temptation, I'm dealing with aggravating people, and I just, just I, I, I lose patience with them. What do you think about? 
Well, you can't say, now, now the devil's tempting me right here to lose self-control, so I need to go find my Bible. No, I have to recall a Bible verse to give me strength. And the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Then he goes on to say, to your uh, self-control, add perseverance. King James says patience, but that word perseverance means to remain under, to be steadfast. One preacher said he, he was preaching in Alabama, and this uh, he preached on uh, perseverance, and his elder said, you need to hang in there like a rusty fish hook. A friend of mine preached out in Texas, he says, you need to hang in there like a hair in a biscuit. Just hang in there. That's right. Now, you'll remember that, won't you? Okay. I mean, steadfast endurance. It's too soon to quit. It's always right to do the right thing. How then do we gain this perseverance? Well, that's a great Bible study. Just to have a, a few minutes on this point. And I'm going to read from uh, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. For what it was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, there's our word, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. So one of the reasons that we study the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we see great examples of faith, he says that'll give you perseverance. If they can do it, I can do it. I preached out in Arizona for about five years, and one of the members of the congregation there, he had uh, a really terrible case of, of uh, colitis, and he was in the, emerg- uh, in the intensive care in Phoenix, and uh, he was close to dying from this. And I went to go see him in the hospital, and he said, Frank, it, this has been really hard, uh, because I've come close to death. I wake up one morning, the person in the room on my left, they wheel them out with a sheet over their head because they died in the middle of the night. The next day after that, the person on the right, the room to the right of me, they wheeled them out with a sheet over their head. They died in the middle of the night. And there are different people that tried to, you know, he was a young man in his 30s. He had two young boys. He was praying to God to let him live so he could raise his boys. And he said, out of all the different things that people told me, The one thing that helped me the most was reading the book of Job. And reading about how Job was a righteous man and that God allowed Satan as a test to see, does Job serve God for nothing? Does he serve God just because it's right? Took away his family, took away his health, took away everything and didn't understand why. And in the end, God brought him through. And he, under, he saw God as never before. And you know, when Job was having that happen to him 3,000 years ago, he had no idea why that was happening. And he had no idea that we'd be talking about it today. The idea is that God takes care of his people. And if they can do it by faith, if they can overcome difficult circumstances, I can too. So that's why we study these great stories of faith to give us perseverance. Then he says, to your perseverance, add godliness. And the word there, godliness, Eusebia, means simply to be well-pleasing to God. 
I think being well-pleasing to God is really one of the synonyms. If you want to talk about what does it mean to be conservative, to conserve God's will, that is not to go beyond God's will. Uh, This is one of the words you can use because godliness means I want to please God above self. Liberalism is when men become presumptive and they want to go beyond or they want to please themselves instead of pleasing God. So if I'm godly, I'm not going to ask what do I like, but I'm going to ask what does God want to be well-pleasing to God. Uh, That simply means we need to have reverence for Bible authority and respect for God in worship to make sure that we're not seduced. And that, uh, he says that verse... um, um, let's see. When we think about that, at the end of time, we're going to be held accountable. He says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And so why do I want to please God? Because one day, as surely as I'm here, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, utterly transparent and give an account. And we want to make sure that we conduct our life, that when we stand before God in judgment, it'll be a day of reward and not a day of condemnation, that I sincerely wanted to submit and please God above self. That's godliness. Verse 3 says he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's the pattern of the New Testament. When we think about worship, do people ask, what did you get out of the worship? Do I think about, are we spectators and it's a form of entertainment? Or do I ask, what did God get out of the worship? That's the first question. So we're to add godliness. And then he says, to your godliness add brotherly kindness or brotherly love. Now some of us may know more Greek words than we realize. The word Philadelphia means the city of brotherly Love And that word is, is a warm emotional kind of love for spiritual brethren who are kin in Christ. Thayer says it's love that Christians cherish each other as brethren. Uh, it's, part, it's a mark of the new birth. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. So... Part of that is agape love, and then we're born into a a warm emotional love with one another. So do we work at developing our relationships one with another, or do we kind of stick with just the same few that we have? The longer a church exists, the harder it is for new people or people that move in or new converts to incorporate or integrate with other people in the congregation. So we always need to think about how do I develop my relationship with other brethren. Do I go through the directory and uh, think about this person, you know, what are they going through in their life? How can I be a blessing to them? The Bible tells us to consider one another, to provoke love and good deeds. Someone said, in every pew is a broken heart. And, you know, if we do we have a relationship with, if I had a serious problem, who would you talk to about this serious problem? Uh, we are a, uh, the local church is a hospital for sinners in recovery. We're trying to help one another be the best Christians possible and to go to heaven. So we want to grow in this brotherly kindness and love and expand our relationships. And then finally, 
He says, to your brotherly kindness, love, agape love, which is sacrificial goodwill to seek the highest good of another. And what's interesting, you look at this particular word, um, agape, it was not used very much in the first, uh, in the early, uh, in classical Greek or in the New Testament era. And really Christianity invented a new concept because Jesus said you are to love your enemies, agape, love. God so loved the world, not a love that was lovely. God so loved a world that was sinful and in rebellion to him. That love is active goodwill that seeks the highest good of another regardless of their position, disposition, or worthiness of that love. No matter what we do, it will not cause God to love us any less. God holds us accountable for our sins. God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. But God always seeks our highest good. And therefore, if I come to know God, it sweetens my spirit and it changes my character and expands my capacity to love. And if I'm not a very loving person, that means I just don't know God. I want you to turn with me as we bring our lesson to a close here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Uh, one of you mentioned to me that you knew Brother Robert Jackson that preached, held meetings here, one of the congregations here, and uh, I knew Brother Jackson uh, growing up. I first started preaching in the Charlotte, Tennessee, where he grew up. And Robert said, you know, I, I know of some brethren, that uh, there's a few brethren that they are sound in the truth on the issues, but they're meaner than a junkyard dog. And what that means is that the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't converted them from being a selfish person into a loving person. You think about how if we had this love, this always seek the highest good of another in the local church, we wouldn't have problems. Anytime you have conflict, that means somebody's not acting like a Christian. Husbands and wives, if we had this agape love toward one another, this selfless devotion to seek the highest good of another, you would resolve problems in a marriage. And parents and children... And, and all that, all our relationships would be improved if we consistently applied the biblical concept of agape love. So as we bring our lesson to a close, that you know, the, the diligent Christian is someone who uh, exhibits constant progression or growth, not necessarily sinless perfection. Success is not where we are, it's the direction in which we are moving. So I hope that all of us Understand that we are diligent in our personal growth in our journey to heaven. We need to uh, live closer to God in heaven than here on earth and realize that our purpose here on earth is to glorify God and to become all that God wants me to be by my personal spiritual growth. If you're a member of the church here and you've not lived a Christian life and you're struggling Maybe you've sinned in a way to bring reproach on Christ. We want you to know we want to pray with you and for you. We want to 
help encourage you if you need to come and confess sin, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.